is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Very good. Well, this is Dr. Harry Quigley doing a podcast on Diagnosis Glaucoma, and we have a very special guest on our program today, uh, Dr. Osama Saidi. Osama, can you tell your listeners a bit about yourself? Sure, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Harry. I uh, grew up in Houston, Texas. I completed med school and residency at the University of Texas Southwestern, where I had a very strong clinical residency, and then had the pleasure of doing my fellowship with you and the faculty at Wilmer more than 10 years ago now. And that was really a, a formative experience in terms of really going my mind onto the interesting questions in glaucoma and really inspiring me to be a clinician scientist. I've now been at the University of Maryland for the last 10 years, currently a professor as well as vice chair and director of clinical research. And my work focuses on the role of blood flow and autoregulation of blood flow and its role in glaucoma, biomarkers of glaucoma, and ultimately, hopefully, new treatments for glaucoma. Normally, I think when our audience, who are, of course, are mostly laypersons, think about blood flow, I think they think of, you know, like an artery or the aorta or, you know, some big pulsing red fire hose. What kind of blood flow actually are we talking about that's relevant for what happens to kill nerve cells in glaucoma? In glaucoma, we're more interested in the smallest possible vessels. So we're really looking at capillary flow, particularly in the optic nerve head, but also in the associated structures, the retina and corticapillaris. And so, you know, the pulsating arteries and veins, I think, are obviously important and relevant in terms of looking at systemic blood pressure. But in this case, what we're looking at, which we think will give us the most information about glaucoma in the long term and in the future, are those smallest vessels, those capillaries that are really on the order of about 10 microns or less. And why are those important in glaucoma? What would happen to them to make nerve cells die and people lose vision? So there's plenty of evidence really to show that impaired blood flow, particularly the optic nerve head, is in itself a risk factor to glaucoma. And there's really a couple of reasons for that. So one is the eye is sort of a unique place where you've got the eye pressure pushing back and the blood pressure pushing forward. So the balance between blood pressure and eye pressure is theorized to be really important in the development of glaucoma. And as you're well aware, in the Baltimore Eye Disease Survey, more than 30 years ago now, it was shown that people with the lowest category of blood pressure had a six times higher risk of glaucoma than the norm. So we've known that there's a risk of glaucoma based on poor perfusion in the optic nerve head. And since then, there's been a number of different studies that have substantiated that, right? And so there's been observations as as early as 40 or 50 years ago showing that when you inject dye into the veins, you end up seeing defects in fluorescein angiography around the optic nerve head. And then since then, there have been a number of devices that have also proved that as well, and it's been shown in animal models as well. So we have an idea that there's this impaired blood flow likely an impairment of the regulation of blood flow in the eye that is then associated with glaucoma. And what that does is that gives us a window, or it really gives us an opportunity to investigate another risk factor for the disease. So we know eye pressure is extremely important, but are there other things that may be related to glaucoma? And, and it's not, you know, it's not to say that there's, it's either eye pressure or blood flow. I think the autoregulation piece really puts that together. So if an eye doctor looking at a patient could actually see or measure this capillary blood flow you're talking about, they might be able to either tell how bad the glaucoma is now or predict how it was going to happen in the future. Is that kind of the point? 
Exactly correct. Right. So the, the point is essentially that if we're able to look at this capillary level blood flow, will that tell us who is at higher risk for getting worse faster? You know, the question that patients often have for us is, you know, doctor, am I going to go blind? And of course, I tell them, you know, it's unlikely you're going to go blind if you're in the early stages of disease and you're under treatment, although it's a possibility. So what is going to tell us who is at highest risk? Who do I need to be most aggressive with? And what can I tell my patients? So I think the blood flow information could be really important as it develops. So would an eye doctor with really sharp eyes be able to see these capillaries or what methods have been tried in terms of being able to see either the blood vessels themselves or actually I think you're going to tell us that the flow is more important? I think the flow is absolutely more important. When you're looking at the blood vessels themselves, there is absolutely evidence that there are in late stage glaucoma changes in blood vessels, even visible blood vessels. However, capillaries for the most part are not visible in the back of the eye to a keen eye doctor that you described. So really, we need special instruments to be able to look in the back of the eye and determine blood flow. Now, the great thing about being an ophthalmologist is that we have these great tools to be able to look at flow directly and to quantify it more than anywhere else in the body. Really, when you think of the two places in the body where you can just visualize, you can just see capillary level flow, it's really in the skin or nail fold and in the eye. And so there's been a long history of methods that we can use to look at blood flow in the eye. This has gone on, as you likely would remember, for the last 40 or 50 years. So it's well known that, for example, George Spath, a well-known ophthalmologist in Philadelphia at Wells Eye Hospital, had written a book on the role of fluorescein angiography or dye-based methods of looking at defects in flow. But that really tells you about the end result of impaired blood flow or impaired autoregulation. Since then, we've really developed very sensitive methods to be able to look at capillary level flow. This started with ultrasound methods in the larger vessels, went on to what we call laser Doppler, so that's sort of Doppler with a laser. And more recently, now there's been laser Doppler, and my own lab has looked at techniques using both labeled erythrocytes, so labeled blood cells, as well as using a novel technique called adaptive optics, which allows us to look at single cell flow as well. So if we look at the methods that existed up until now, they really were looking at more gross, non-quantifiable flow methods, or they were looking at bigger blood vessels. After all, I think that's what the back of the eye laser Doppler color kinds of techniques did. There's one called OCT angiography, OCTA. Do you think that measures blood flow, or is that not really the promise of what it originally said it might do? So OCT angiography is a really interesting technique developed by David Huang, who's currently at the KCI Institute in Oregon. It is, you know, initially there were a number of reports that came out that said not only can this map out blood flow, but can also measure blood flow values. Now, what we've learned since then is it's actually a little more complicated than that, probably a lot more complicated than that. OCT angiography is able to map out individual capillaries really well. And I think that gives us an important tool. I think that's very interesting and useful. I personally think that, and I think the evidence backs up, that the flow is probably an earlier sign and will probably be more important. But OCT angiography in its current form, its commercially available form, is not able to really determine flow. There are, however, interesting innovations within OCT angiography as a discipline that may allow that to happen in the future. And so I think that those are potentially exciting, but we're not there yet. And ultimately, 
OCTA, again, is really good at mapping out those vessels and seeing, is there a defect here? Is there a defect there? And that may serve as an adjunct in certain cases, but I absolutely agree. I think that the money is going to be in flow. The benefit of OCT and geography is that it is sort of widely available, is that it's been added on to a lot of our existing diagnostic methodologies. But the downside is that it has not been a very efficient way to try to measure blood flow. Well, we were talking about the optic nerve head, and if the damage is happening in the optic nerve head, how easy or difficult is it to see what's going on in blood flow within the optic nerve head, as opposed to the retina, which is more easily seen? It's an extremely good point, right? So we're able to look in the back of the eye, and the retina is the most obvious and most visible area. That's where we have the most information from our regular OCT, looking at various retinal thicknesses or neurofibrillar thicknesses, as it were. Around the optic nerve, you can look at certain blood vessels that are adjacent to it, or even look at some blood vessels in areas of atrophy around the nerve, which a lot of groups in Asia have been looking at. But the optic nerve itself, you're absolutely right, because it's myelinated, because it's you know not in the same axis, and the z-axis as opposed to the xy-axis, you know, difficult to image. There have been investigations looking at optic nerve head blood flow using a laser speckle device. And there's some evidence that it might be able to penetrate a little further, although that is also challenging. I think the blood vessels in the, in the area of interest are actually surrounded by a bunch of connective tissue, which is pretty opaque to light. And I think that, that probably gives laser speckle and the other methods a, a real pain in the tail for trying to figure out how to do the measurement. You've been doing some really cool stuff, and you already mentioned it, about labeling blood cells. How do you do that, and what would the method tell us? Absolutely. You know, I was fortunate when I joined the University of Maryland to work under Bob Flower, who actually worked at Wilmer many years ago and developed ICG angiography, or helped popularize it in the eye. And so he had developed a technique whereby... In mainly in animals, he was encapsulating the same dye. So this is a dye that is often used in clinic where we're injecting in the veins and looking at the pattern of you know, filling in the eye and is used for a number of things, the most commonly sort of retinal disease or retinochoroidal disease. And so in this case, the idea was, what if we can encapsulate the fluorescent dye into a red blood cell? And in fact, all we needed to do was draw two tubes of blood from a patient and then really just re-inject about, you know, the equivalent of, let's say, a half a teaspoon back into the circulation, and you can actually see individual cells moving in the eye. What that allows you to do is not only look at retinal flow, it also allows some visualization of choroidal flow. And, you know, what I think has been the most interesting thing, or a most interesting thing that we've looked at, is in fact that while we conceive of blood flow as a constant motion, a pulsatile motion that's constantly moving one direction, in reality, it's much more complex. And in fact, there are numerous examples that we found where cells are sort of starting and stopping within the capillary circulation. So that is allowing us to look at blood flow in the retina, in the choroid, around the optic nerve, and then look at those blood vessels, which are you know, adjacent to the optic nerve head and looking at the effect of eye pressure on those blood vessels, really helping us understand autoregulation of flow in the eye itself. And the interesting thing to me has been that the ultimate goal would be to find out about the nutrition of the tissue, because after all, the blood flow is how much blood's moving. And we assume that that gives good nourishment to the nerve cells that it's going through. But 
we'd really love to be able to measure some factor which tells you that the nerve cells are getting energy. They're, they're getting stuff that feeds their energy, mitochondria, that sort of stuff. That's kind of even further beyond into the future, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I personally think both have an important role. I think that actually understanding tissue perfusion is important and autoregulation is important because I think there's something to the balance between eye pressure and blood pressure. And then I absolutely think that early marker for glaucoma could be some sort of metabolic marker, almost like a PET scan for the eye. So is that oxygenation, oximetry? There have been various attempts at that. Is that some sort of mitochondrial marker? And I think that's very exciting. I mean, I think that's certainly very exciting. Is the next thing going to be some sort of oximetry with visible light OCT? Is it going to be, you know, the next form of hyperspectral imaging? I think we are at a very exciting time, you know, where we're going to see these diagnostics develop. Well, the term that you've used a couple of times now is autoregulation. Why don't you tell our audience what that means and why it's important? So everywhere in the body, there is some maintenance of blood flow to the tissues to ensure that the tissues are well perfused. This is particularly important in the brain, right? So you can imagine if there's, there are intrinsic mechanisms such that we can regulate oxygenation, oxygen delivery to the eye. So for example, what we've seen is when you deliver oxygen to a patient, if you just put them on a non-rebreather, you see marked changes in blood flow, both in terms of velocity as well as flow in the smallest vessels in the eye. That's in a control in a normal person. In an individual with glaucoma, what we see is that this is relatively impaired. And this is also something that you can measure in terms of response to eye pressure as well. And this is where I think it's most relevant, right? So if you end up having high eye pressure, how do you maintain a certain level of blood flow? And are glaucoma patients a little more susceptible? So there is some range in which you can maintain a certain level of blood flow, a certain range of eye pressure. And at some point, the eye pressure gets so high that it overcomes this regulation that is intrinsic to the eye. That is to say that you have mechanisms in your body that can maintain what we would say is homeostasis, and you can overcome that at these extremes, either high eye pressure or low blood pressure. What we're finding, and what's substantiated by other literature as well, is that our glaucoma patients, at least in cross-sectional studies, have impaired autoregulation. That's to say that you're able to more easily overcome this thermostat, if you will, in the glaucoma patient. So there's some additional susceptibility to it. Yeah, I think it's a general concept that we're all getting used to now in disorders or diseases, that the disease is not necessarily that somebody at baseline is worse than everybody else, but that they can't tolerate adversity. That, you know, if I can come back against a thousand cuts and still not bleed to death, then I'm the one that's going to survive. You mentioned the word adaptive optics. Uh, Describe what that involves and what you've been able to do with it, because your pictures on that are absolutely spectacular. So I've been fortunate. I have great collaborators I work with both at the FDA, Dan Hammer and Joe and Lou over there, as well as at the NIH, where I work with Johnny Tam, who has you know, these very, very specialized optical cameras. Adaptive optics is a technique that was developed you know, many years ago and is actually used on the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, you're able to really overcome what was previously an optical limit. And so when you use this in the eye, essentially you're able to look at not just larger blood vessels, not just 
individual layers of the retina, for example, as you can with OCT, but individual cells. And so in a relatively small field of view, you can look at individual cells in the eye, individual neurons, you can look at bundles of axons. And so what this allows us to do is to look at our subjects with glaucoma at different levels of glaucoma, look at areas that are more or less affected by glaucoma and say, what's the difference in those cells as compared to a healthy control or as compared to a less affected area? And, you know, we found something very interesting, which was that, well, the density of the cells was less. That was potentially predictable. What was also interesting was the cells that were remaining seemed to be larger in size. In fact, they seemed to be larger in size than what we were seeing in our controls. So it seems that perhaps they may have expanded. And that's an area of interesting research. So what is happening with cells as the glaucoma is progressing? How much of that is, you know, adaptive? How much of that is maladaptive? I think that's the next real, you know, question that we have. And we have to sort of look at that over a long term to see that. Yeah, our group and others and the group in Rochester and a group in Berkeley, California, have used adaptive optics to look at individual cells in the eye. The downside at the moment is that only very, very small little areas can be seen at one time, and it takes quite a bit of imaging to get through and do it. But I don't think that's necessarily going to be a long-term difficulty for us, because in the past, the computing power of instruments has improved so dramatically you know, every, whatever it is, uh, every X years, the chips get better and better. So I think what we need to do is to push as you're doing with adaptive optics and other methods and expect that technology is going to let us see a much wider view and even see a whole lot of the back of the eye in a reasonable space of time. But these are methods, uh, they're not ready for prime time and clinical use yet. Am I fair to say that? Correct, correct. So, you know, the whole discussion we've had is really talking about the frontier of optics, the frontier of blood flow. Certainly for the listeners to your podcast and for, you know, sort of regular patients, you know, this stuff is not stuff that we're really using in clinic yet. I mean, I think that, you know, when I'm using these techniques, it's really so that I can, you know, it's really in the setting of more of a, a clinical trial type setting or where I can really try to understand these data better and, you know, hopefully develop it further such that it is, in fact, ready for prime time. But, but at this point, you know, these blood flow diagnostics or these cellular level diagnostics are, you know, really mainly in the level of sort of trial stages, if you will. Yeah, but I think a lot of our listeners to podcasts that are, in fact, glaucoma patients, and many of them, we want to thank you who participated in research projects, such as the ones Dr. Saidi is talking about, where he took blood out of somebody, labeled their blood cells, put it back in. These folks put up with a whole lot of imaging and a lot of time of their time in order to help everyone else with glaucoma. And so in addition to those who, you know, mail a check to your favorite institution of research or who listen to our podcasts, we, we want to thank you for being participants because we really can't do it without you. You can start in mice and rats and lower animals, but ultimately the best subjects in which to learn are humans. So, Osama, thank you so much for participating in our podcast today. And I look forward to doing this again in a year or two when you've got some new spectacular data to share with us uh, in the future. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Harry. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says take your drops. 